If you weren't here this morning, we will not be starting 1 Kings tonight. And I really, as we were closing out with 2 Samuel, I, I really just sensed the Lord not giving me peace about going to 1 Kings. And so I wanted to spend some time seeking the Lord while Eric uh, taught Jonah. It was a huge blessing to us. And the Lord uh, led me to that we we're supposed to do a study on cults. And so we're going to spend the next six to eight weeks looking at the spirit of error that John describes in his first gospel. And so that's kind of where our study will start tonight is 1 John chapter 4. I'll be referencing a lot of Bible verses tonight, but we will be kind of going through those first six verses of 1 John. So let me start off, though, with why would we even spend time doing this? Why, why would we study the cults? Well, first off, let's explain what the purpose of studying the cults is not. Number one, this is not to bash non-Calvary Chapel ministries. The study will not be about how our church is awesome and other churches are bad. That is not what this is about, okay? Uh, it is also not designed to give you a full-fledged expose of all Christian cults. There are better resources than me for that. There are two I'm going to put up there, all right? Kingdom of the Cults by Dr. Walter Martin, Handbook of Today's Religions by Josh McDowell and Don Stewart are two resources I fully recommend. If you want to dig in deep, these guys will go deep. And so there's just not enough time for us to do that in this type of a setting. Uh, When I took my cults class at Bible college, we would have two-hour chunks where we would cover one cult. I mean, and so that's going to take, that would take us four weeks. We'd be doing it for months, and that I don't think is what God wants us to do here. So it's not designed to give you a full-fledged expose of all the Christian cults. It's also not designed to discuss false religions with no ties to Christianity. We're not going to talk about Hinduism or or Buddhism or Islam. Not that those are things that shouldn't be talked about, but that's not going to be our focus in this. And then lastly, uh, we are not going to train you how to win arguments with people who knock on your door. That's not the goal of this study, okay? So what is the purpose of doing a study like this? to study the cults. Well, as in every study we do at Calvary Chapel Orlando, it's to know Jesus better at the end of the study than when we started the study, always. And so we're going to be in the Word a lot. I'm I'm going to give you a lot of information, but we're going to be in the Word a lot. And we're going to get to know Jesus, and we're going to love Him more through this. The second purpose is to know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error so that we can quickly recognize unbiblical doctrine. Have you ever been somewhere and you heard someone speak and you kind of just go, something's not up, like something's wrong? I remember my, my wife and her sister were at uh, a church service at one point in time and they were, as the worship team got up there, they just noticed some interactions at, and it, with, between a couple of the team members and, uh, and they thought something's, just something's wrong, but they couldn't put their finger on it. It came out later on that one of the people in leadership was having an affair with someone on the worship team. It's nice to have that, that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us that's going, something's up, something's not solid here. But it's a lot easier if you can go, hey, the Bible says this and they said that. That's what it is. Uh, And so this will be the purpose of studying this is to know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error so we can quickly recognize unbiblical doctrine. And the third purpose is to, and I know this may trigger some of you, but to inoculate you from being lured into a Christian cult in the future because that's who they're going to prey on. They're going to prey on people who are already churched, who want to follow the Lord, who want to serve God, and that's who they prey on. So we want to inoculate you from that. So how are we going to do that? Well, to accomplish these goals, we're going to do the following. I know some of you are becoming like, oh, are we going to learn about Mormonism tonight? No. We're going to accomplish this, number one, by doing an in-depth study of scriptures that deal with false teaching and heresy. 
Number two, we're going to do an in-depth general examination of just doctrinal errors that Christian cults commonly embrace. Then when we have established kind of our baseline and our foundation, then we will start doing some in-depth specific examinations, not of every Christian cult, but of the doctrinal errors that are specific to cults you are more likely to encounter here in Central Florida. That's my main concern. There's going to be specific ones that are very big in our area. Some you may not have heard of, but they are big in the area, and you are likely to run into them, and that's going to be the thing that's most helpful to you. And then fourthly, it's to train you, not how to win arguments, but to lovingly share the grace and truth of God with people who knock on your door. That's going to be one of our goals, okay? All right. Well, what is a Christian cult? If I can get that next slide. There we go. So a Christian cult is a group that would not only claim to be a pure expression of Christianity, but they claim to be the only true and exclusive expression of Christianity. That is radically different than the fact that Christianity has lots of denominations. That's not, that's a radical, that idea there that we are the only true church and all other churches do not accurately express Christianity, that is a cult. That's very different than the fact that there are other churches in Central Florida that are around us that we may disagree with on some things. Our worship services might look a little bit different, but the majority of us who agree on the essentials of Christianity, we see them as our brothers and sisters, right? Like we don't look at if there's a a Baptist church or a Methodist church or a Pentecostal church or a Reformed church down the road, and if they believe the essentials of Christianity, We might do worship a little different. They might have stained glass windows. They might have more uh, classical or conservative music, or they might be a little nuttier uh, in how their services go, a little bit more expressive, a little bit more moving around and stuff. But if they believe the essentials of Christianity, we would say, well, we're not going to do that, and we have good reasons, but they're still our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We would never say that we are the only way to do church, and we are the only true and exclusive expression of Christianity. That's Calvary Chapel Orlando or Calvary Chapel in general. We do not believe that, but cults do. Cults do. Josh McDowell and Don Stewart in their book, The Handbook of Religions, they said, a cult is a perversion, a distortion of biblical Christianity and or a rejection of the historic teachings of the Christian church. They are going to be something altogether different, altogether different, not just something where we have a few differences in how we do things. Now, because of these kind of exclusive claims, like I mentioned up here, a cult is almost always centered around a founder or a group of founders. This is an individual or a group of individuals who broke away from Christianity because they claim to have rediscovered the only true expression of Christianity. And this rediscovery can take three forms. So these are three kinds of Christian cults you can run into. Number one, the first form is the Bible is that group's sole authority for what they believe, but the founders have rediscovered how to interpret it correctly. Groups that fall under this category would be like the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't have any extra books that they will say are Scripture. They say, well, we, only, we believe in the Bible. We have the same Bible you do, which is not true, but you'll find that out later. But they'll, they'll say, we believe the same Bible that you do, but they have rediscovered how it's supposed to be understood. And it's radically different than how you and I understand our Bible. 
Another example of this would be the Church of Christ International. They're a big one here in Central Florida, and they like to hide the fact of who they are, which is why they can be so deceptive. I remember my first interactions with the Church of Christ International was we had a a young lady who came to uh, our—I worked with her, and me and Bev both worked with her when we were, I think, in college— and we invited her to come to our, our Bible study, our youth Bible study, and so our young adults Bible study. And so she came, and then she came with somebody else. And so somebody else was just super quiet that whole night, didn't say anything. And this young lady, she had questions and was interested in all sorts of things, and, and it was just a great study, a great time. Well, when that young lady got in the car with her, the person who came with her, the person turned to her and said, none of those people were saved. They're not Christians. She was her assigned discipler, sent to guard her and make sure she didn't do anything she wasn't allowed, supposed to do, that the organization doesn't let you do. You may have seen this group on a 2020 episode that they did on the Boston Church of Christ International. That's where their headquarters are. Uh, But they have a huge one here. I remember I was at dinner once with Bev. Uh, We were sitting down. I don't remember where it was. It was up here when they used to have Bennigan's. Anybody remember Bennigan's? How old are you? You are old if you remember Bennigan's, so, or at least as old as me. We were up there, and I noticed the people next to us were talking about the Bible and everything, and, and I thought, how about I go talk to them? And Bev goes, I think that's Kit McKean, who's the head of the Church of Christ International here. And I was like, no, no. And sure enough, that's who it was. And man, after we started talking, his wife did not like me. And she was just tearing me up all up and down and all the wrong things I believed and this and that and the other thing and how dangerous I was. So anyway, but these, these are two cults. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Church of Christ International are two cults who fall into that category. The next category, number two, is one where the founders have rediscovered new scripture that is on an equal level of authority with the Bible when determining what they believe. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more probably more commonly known to you as Mormons, falls under this category. These are the three extra, one of them has two books in one, but these are three extra books that they call Scripture. They say the Bible Scripture, then they have the Book of Mormon, then they have what's called Doctrines and Covenants, and then the Pearl of Great Price. So they have four Bibles. They have a quad is what they call it. They have four Bibles or four Scriptures that they use. Uh, Christian Science is another, uh, although a dying cult in our area, that has extra writings. <laughs> we have a gentleman here who came out of that, and he's like, yeah, get him, you know. <laughs> um, but they also have other writings that are considered Scripture in addition to the Bible. So the third group of cults is where the founders have experienced visions or psychic experiences that gave new revelation that is also on an equal level of authority with the Bible when determining what they believe. Some branches, not all, but some branches of Seventh-day Adventism are in that vein of thought. If you remember the whole David Koresh thing, I think it was in the late 80s or early 90s in Waco, that whole experience, these are groups of Branch Davidians that believe that they're Their leaders have special revelation from God. Some of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventism movement, I think it's Ellen G. White's her name. She has books she's written that are considered, you know, basically on par with Scripture because they are new revelation of Scripture. Um, One that is growing by leaps and bounds in our area right now is another uh, cult called Black Hebraism. Uh, You may have run, I know some of our H4O folks have run into them down at Lake Eola. You guys are like, who are these guys? They're a cult. So uh, Black Hebraism is another group that they believe that they've received revelation from God, that they are the Jewish people, that the people of Africa are Jewish people, not the people of Israel. And so, and that's a whole different ball of wax we'll get into. 
The Unification Church, the Moonies, they're better known as, are another group that falls into this category. So uh, those are the three types of cults. Now, you might be thinking, if I already believe the Bible is the Word of God and that I don't think anything needs to be rediscovered, why would I need to study cults? Well, for two reasons. Two reasons to study cults. Number one, God gave us a duty to proclaim the gospel to all creation, including people in cults. We can't just ignore them because we say, well, they're nutty, or they won't listen, or they're just trying to convince other people of things that are wrong. We have a responsibility to make disciples, to share the gospel with them. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 is the Great Commission. Go into all the world, that's what it says, and make disciples of how many creatures? All of them. (laughs) And that includes the folks who are in the cults. I realize, I remember I watched a video one time, and it was a video of, you know, when a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door. And it's got like the dad, you know, and he's like, everybody duck, everybody get hide under the cow. Don't get anywhere near the door. You know, nobody's home. If we're quiet enough, they'll just go away. And of course, they're knocking on the door. We know you're in there. And that is not to be our response. Now, I understand that there are times that are not good. And there are times when I have answered the door and said, listen, I would love to talk to you about Jesus, but now is not a good time. The kid's having a meltdown or whatever. Now is not a good time. So I will talk to you when you come back next time. But if it's just the issue of, oh, I don't want to have to talk to these folks, that's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of God. And there are times when they walked up and I thought, I had different plans for my afternoon. But Lord, you had different plans for my afternoon. And so here we go. Let's go minister the love and the grace of God to them. I remember I have a dear friend of mine, one of my roommates at Bible college. He's a pastor in Utah. He's a former Mormon. His whole heart is to reach uh, Latter-day Saints. Uh, That's what his whole church is. He's there in Utah, and his whole church is former Latter-day Saints. That's his heart. That's who they're targeting, who are trying to reach, is to get them out of this dangerous environment, uh, to bring them to the truth of the gospel. And I I was asking him, I said, that's a long story, but the Mormons were after me for a while. And... um, well, I had a coworker who, she had just gotten saved, and, and this is who they target. They target new believers. And so these folks started interacting with her, and they started pulling her away from her church that she got saved at, and, and she got involved with the Mormon church. And I, we'd warned her, me and a coworker, I said, please don't do this. They're dangerous. They're a cult. Da, da, da. She didn't listen because they really invested a lot of time into her. And as a result, about six months later, she comes to us in tears. She's like, I can't get away from them. And I said, that's why we called it a cult. <laughs> I can't get away from them. I don't know what to do. They're, they follow me home. They come to my work environment. They're here right now. Well, I, in that moment, I was in management, and I was like, oh, no, this is not happening. And I had them trespass from the place, whatever. So they got really upset, and they sent a couple bishops to my house to yell at me. So anyway, why did I bring that up? Oh, I brought that up. <laughs> I brought that up because I was talking to my friend, and I'm like, hey, how do you reach these folks? It seems like I just kind of hit a wall. And he goes, well... He goes, they don't understand the grace of God. He goes, they don't know Jesus like you do. Don't try to argue with them about all the other stuff. Just give them the truth of the grace of God. And it changed my whole focus. These are people Jesus died for, he loves, and I just need to give them grace because they have no answer for that. So anyway, that's the first reason. The second reason is that God gave us a command to test the spirits. We're gonna get into what that is tonight, but God gave us a command to test the spirits. Now, We won't accomplish either of those things. We won't accomplish proclaiming the gospel to those who are in cults or testing the spirits if we don't understand the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So that's where we're going to start this series, start this study tonight on Christian cults. 
with John's teaching on the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So 1 John chapter 4, and let's just read the first six verses to get an idea of where we're at. Verse 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby do you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak of the world, and the world listens to them. We are of God. He that knows God hears us, listens to us. He that is not of God does not listen to us. Hereby do we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John tells us that everything he just said in verses one through six is how we learn to understand the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, we start in verse one and he says, beloved, and that's a great start. You who are dear, you who are the objects of someone's affection, Someone, John could be referring to his personal affection for them, but he is likely referring to God's affection for us. And it's important to understand that God gives us commands and warnings because he loves us. He does it because he loves us. When we tell our kids when they're little and they've got the the intoxicating pull of the light socket switch, right? Or the hot thing. And you say, don't touch that. Why do we do that? because we just want to spoil their fun. Man, you just said you're going to light up like a Christmas tree. It'd be awesome. But I don't want you to have any fun, so no. No, we do it because we love them. We know that will be dangerous for them. And so when God gives us commands and warnings, it's the same motivation. He loves us. We're beloved. So yes, studying our Bible takes time, but that's what you and I need. You will not regret time sacrificed to understand the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, God's command and warning here has two parts. He says, beloved, number one, don't believe every spirit. And then number two, test the spirits. Instead of believing every spirit, test the spirits. So let's start with the first command. Don't believe every spirit. Don't believe means you must not trust, you must not rely upon, or you should stop trusting or relying upon every spirit. Now, What's a spirit? Well, it's an immaterial, supernatural being. There are only two types of beings that fall into that category. God is spirit, the Bible tells us, right? And angels are spirits. Those are the only two beings that fall into the category. Now, can we trust God? Of course we can. We can always rely upon God. We can always trust in Him. Uh, We don't need to stop trusting in Him. So the idea here is we should not be trusting all angels, right? Angels, they can be faithful spirits and God's servants, right? In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, that's what uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us. He goes, of the angels, he says, that he makes them his angel spirits and his ministers of flame of fire. There are faithful angels who we can trust, but there are wicked spirits that are God's enemies that we cannot. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities and powers and all manner of wicked spirits in high places, Right? So there are entities out there who are not something we should trust. 
Why is this important to bring this up? Well, the word angel simply means messenger. That's what the word angel means. There are faithful messengers that come from God, and there are false messengers. These God did not send. Okay? So you can't trust every angel. Now, we can trust the Holy Spirit. He was a messenger of Scripture, right? Sometimes the Bible tells us angels were messengers of Scripture. But wicked angels have never fulfilled that role. And so while God does allow them to do things that accomplish His will, wicked angels are liars. That's interesting. Because it means that truth and error are not just ideas or concepts. They are actual entities who are propagating either truth or propagating error. Three times in the book of John, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, calls Him the Spirit of truth. He calls Him that. So we know who the Spirit of truth is. It's the Holy Spirit, okay? John repeats this statement in verse 2 when he says, hereby you know the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth who guided godly men to give us the Bible. He came with God's message, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 21 through 21, that he guided holy men to write the Scriptures. The Bible does not come out and tell us who the spirit of error is. However, I do believe that Jesus gives us some clues. So look at John 8 with me. John 8. Jesus uses some very interesting language here about a particular fallen angel. John 8, verses 44 through 47 referring to the religious leaders who had rejected him and were plotting to kill him, he says this, you are of your father, who? Who? The devil. You are of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father you will do. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in what? The truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, from out of his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of it. That sounds like the spirit of error to me. <laughs> or at the very least, the opposite of the spirit of truth. So I, I'm not saying for a fact that's who John's referring to, but it seems to be the best answer. Now what's interesting, if we keep reading... Jesus goes on to say, after he describes Satan this way, he says, and because I tell you the truth, that's why you don't believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I say the truth, why don't you believe me? He that is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you don't listen to them because you're not of God. They're following their father, the spirit of error. So, What's interesting about that transaction or that conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders is it shows us that a human being chooses whether to submit to the spirit of truth or the spirit of error. It's our choice. That's what Jesus told the religious leaders in John 8. You're submitted to the spirit of error, so you won't listen to the spirit of truth. So this is something you and I need to remember when we're talking to someone who has embraced the spirit of error that they have submitted their lives to a lie. There's a supernatural aspect to this. Therefore, my goal when I'm encountering someone who knocks on my door or I engage with someone who's involved in a cult isn't just to have superior logic or convince them their message is wrong. We're in a spiritual battle. 
they must become convinced that they're listening to the wrong messenger, which means we need to give them the spirit of truth. That goal requires more than winning a logical argument, an intellectual argument with them. In fact, it requires them seeing the different messenger who lives inside of you. It's not just about winning an intellectual argument. It's about them seeing Jesus in you, the spirit of truth, the spirit of God in you. It requires both the truth of God's word and the power of God's spirit. You need to understand that the cult member is not the target of your attack. The spirit of error is the target of your attack. Now, because of this radical difference in the message God's spirit brings and the message the enemy brings, this is why we have to do the second part of John's command here. First, we need to not trust every spirit, but secondly, we need to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. That phrase of God is a genitive of source or origin. We need to test the genuineness of these spirits, prove whether they come from God or whether they don't. We must attempt to learn the genuineness of the spirits by examining what a person says, if God truly sent them to give us a message. Now, most of us are never going to talk to an angel, (laughs) not in this life at least, let alone a message from God from an angel. But it's not an angel or even the Spirit of God who brings the message directly to us. The Spirit of God uses messengers. I hope I'm a good messenger tonight. But in the case of wicked spirits, they also use messengers. They use false prophets. And that's why we need to test the spirits, John says, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. You need to understand something. You don't have to be on the fringe of society or have weird coworkers to get exposed to false messengers. You don't. A false prophet is one who claims to speak for God, but who does not. It's that simple. So while that can take the form of a coworker or someone who knocks on your door, this also takes the form of someone who speaks publicly. In other words, someone who claims to be God's servant among a group of people who call themselves Christians. False prophets don't exist out there with a pitchfork and a forked tongue and a Satan suit. They look just like you and me. In Acts chapter 17, 11, Paul, when he came to the city of Berea and he shared in the synagogue there from the scriptures, he said that they were noble because they sought the scriptures. They searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. If Paul the apostle can be checked out for genuineness and commended the Berean Christians for doing so, then anyone can. No one should ever be concerned. Well, they were checking me out. Well, good. Like one of the coolest things that can ever happen to me as a pastor, and when someone comes up to me and says, you know what? I was, you were teaching today, and I, I was checking out to see if what you were saying was true. I get all pumped up with that. I'm like, yeah, go. Get in there. Don't take my word for it. Get in there. Dig in there. That's the whole goal. whole goal isn't just to be like, that was great. No, it's supposed to, you know, pike something in you, spark something in you, go, I want to dig in there and see, see if that's what it says. In other words, John says, it's not okay for you and me just to hear a sermon or a teaching uh, or have someone share their heart with us and just receive it because someone says, well, I got a message from God for you. We have to check it out. We have to examine 
them to determine if the source is God. So how do we perform this examination? Well, 1 John 4, 2. Hereby, by means of this. How do we perform this test, this examination? By means of this. It means it refers to one event that makes another event possible. By some means, we will know. This is the other event. We will know the Spirit of God. The word here, know, it's not about intellectual knowledge. It means to gain experiential knowledge about something. In other words, there's a way that we're going to handle it when someone comes to us or someone's preaching and says, I've got a message from the Lord. There's a way that we handle that that allows us to go, I see that that's the Spirit of God. That's from the Lord. So what other event makes it possible for us to understand and recognize when the source is the Holy Spirit? John tells us it's this. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now, this word confesses is not just a public declaration. The word means someone whose faith rests in their declaration. It's not just someone who is making a public statement. It's someone who is living out what they preach. In other words, it's both the content of what they say and how they live. I've heard people say, well, they say Jesus came in the flesh, so they must be from God. Anybody can say that. I can tell you I'm Superman. Doesn't make it true. On the other hand, if I go into a phone booth and I come out flying, might be plausible. So what do these two areas of their life need to declare? What they say and how they live. What do those two areas of their life need to declare? That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. What does that mean? Well, first off, let's stop with Jesus Christ. There is an untranslated word there. It's a the. It's a definitive article. The Jesus who is the Messiah. That's not a a murky statement, is it? The Jesus who is the Messiah. In other words, Jesus isn't just a name people can use to say whatever they want. When we say the Jesus who is the Messiah, that's a very specific identity, isn't it? So they need to get who Jesus is correct and the idea that he not is come, but has already come in the flesh. The word here, come, is in the perfect tense, which means it's a completed action in the past that has ongoing results forever. He is, it's done. He already came in the flesh. He did what he needed to do in his time on the earth. And everything that he did, he said at the end, what? It is finished. One of the earliest Christian cults was a group called the Gnostics. Gnostics had some very interesting things on Jesus, beliefs about Jesus. Number one, they taught that the Christ was a spirit being, that he was a Messiah consciousness that descended into a normal man named Jesus when John baptized him. So this idea is that Jesus was just a normal guy who lived like you and me, no miraculous birth, nothing hokey about his life, and then all of a sudden when he went to John to get baptized, this Christ consciousness said, he's my man. And he came upon Jesus. The next thing they taught about Jesus is that Jesus became the Messiah from that time until his death on the cross. Whereby, when the man died, the Messiah spirit left him and went back to heaven. So, from the time of Jesus' baptism to the time of his death on the cross, 
That's when the Christ consciousness was on him. He was the Messiah. But then when Jesus died, the Christ Messiah spirit was like, okay, peace, I'm out, and left him, and he just was a normal man again when he died. Now, that is weird, isn't it? Like, is that description of Jesus in any way consistent with the biblical account we have? Like nowhere, like nowhere. I mean, if you've been coming here any time, you're going to go, nope, Pastor Will, that's weird. Like that's nowhere near what the Bible has to say. So John had encountered these Gnostics. He, was a, 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 he ran into them a lot. They were a huge problem for the early church. And John's point is you can know that the source of a messenger is the Holy Spirit when what they say and how they live matches with the biblical account of Jesus. What they say and how they live matches the biblical account of Jesus. Now, an example of how we can say that's not the Holy Spirit. I'm going to put a quote up there for you. This is a quote by Matthew Dowd, who's an MSNBC analyst who claims to be a Christian. He recently said this, the entire message of the Gospels of the Easter holidays was love one another. If Jesus was alive today, he would be called a groomer, he would be called woke, and he would be called a socialist. You can get the next slide. He was nailed to a cross for our, uh, he was nailed to a cross because he spoke on behalf of the most marginalized people in the Middle East. Now, let's take that quote and let's examine it. I can say with all confidence that the source of Mr. Dowd's message here to us, that he went on live TV and decided to share with the world, I can say with all confidence that that is not the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, first off, if we go back to the first part of the quote, he says the entire message of the Gospels of the Easter holidays was to love one another. There is no message in the Gospel of the Easter holidays because there are no Easter holidays in the Gospels. Secondly, Jesus would not be called a groomer because he called sexual immorality of all kinds wicked. Go to the next slide. Thirdly, Jesus was not nailed to the cross because he stuck up for marginalized people. He was nailed to the cross for my sin, for Matthew Dowd's sin. The Jesus that Matthew Dowd described in that interview does not exist, is not real. When I say Jesus the Messiah, the Jesus who is the Messiah, I am referring to God the Son who left heaven, who was born of a virgin, who took on our flesh and blood, who lived as a man for 30 years without sin, and then who died on the cross for the sins of the world. Then rose from the dead, which by the way is the Easter message, not love one another, who rose from the dead and then ascended to the right hand of God the Father. In addition to that, when I say Jesus the Messiah, the Jesus who is the Messiah, I am referring to all the very real things Jesus taught and the very real way Jesus lived, how he conducted his life, his behavior on earth. And so when a person's words and their life accurately reflect Jesus the Messiah, the one who came in the flesh, well, then I can know the Spirit of God sent them to me. I can look at them and I can go, well, they live like Jesus and they repeat the things Jesus said. That must be the Spirit of God. The opposite is also true. Verse three, 
And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is that spirit of Antichrist where you've heard that it should come, but even now it's already in the world. The word Antichrist, it means one who is opposed to Christ, but it also means one who seeks to replace Christ, to supplant the role of the Messiah. Now, that is a description of Satan and his servants, the spirit of error and all of his messengers, false prophets. So, when a person's words and life do not accurately reflect Jesus the Messiah, the one who came in the flesh, I can know that Satan has sent them. So I can say with absolute confidence that Satan sent Matthew Dowd to go on live TV and preach a false gospel to the world. That's not me being nasty towards that individual. I'm saying you can look at that and go, that's not the Spirit of God. That's the Spirit of error that's speaking there. The Bible is not relative. It is filled with absolutes. And so a Christian can have absolute certainty of what is true and what is not true, of what is wrong and what is right, of what is from God and what is not from God. Absolute certainty. And so that means when it comes to who Jesus is, the Bible deals with clear and specific statements. It's not a blank canvas that I can paint however I wish. The spirit of truth and the spirit of error are recognized by hearing the words of truth or hearing the words of error, by seeing a life of truth or a life of error. This life side of things is emphasized in verses four through six. In verse four, we see that a true messenger submits to truth. Verse four, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Now, who's the them? The false prophets. You are of God, little children. You have overcome the false prophets. You've overcome the source of the false prophets, the the spirit of error, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, what does it mean that Jesus lives inside me? Paul tells us in Galatians 2.20, he says, for I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. That's the problem, by the way. It's like, I've been crucified with Jesus. My problem is I'm not in heaven yet. I'm still here. I'm still in this thing. And yet, what does Paul say about the Christian life? He goes, yet not I. I'm not the one doing the living. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He lives through me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As we submit to the truth that we learn, we grow in Christ, Jesus gets a stronger hold of us, and he lives through us more. And we look more like him. Amen? That's the Christian life, in a nutshell. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? New creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're going a different direction now. We're following Jesus. We were going this way, but that's all died. Now we're following Jesus. These Christians that John was writing to, they overcame the words of error and the spirit of error by submitting to the words of truth and the spirit of truth. And they continue to overcome the words of error and the spirit of error by allowing Jesus to live a life of truth through them. In contrast, a false messenger does not submit to the truth. Look at verse five. They, the false prophets, they are of the world. 
what's the world? Aren't we all of the world? I mean, don't we all live here? Yes, of course we all live here. But the word world here doesn't refer to the planet Earth. It means the system of standards and practices that are opposed to God. God's truth, the world is that which is opposed to God's truth. It's a system of life, standards in life that is opposed to the system God set up and the standards God has. That's why you can detect the spirit of error, not just from someone's teaching, but from their conduct. There are times I hear people and I'm going, I'm like, man, their teaching sounds right, but they, they're, they're off. You know, the way they talk to people, the way they act, the arrogance about them, that the whole attitude is just unchristlike. Either their teaching or their conduct does not line up with the Bible. We are of God, John says, and he that knows God listens to us. We studied that this morning when we talked about the apostles, right? They were his messengers. The messengers that the Spirit of God sent to give us an eyewitness account and to relay Jesus' teaching, right? He says, we're from God, guys. And he that knows God listens to us, listens to the Word of God. But he that is not of God does not listen to us. They don't listen to the Word of God. That's how you know, you recognize the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. When we examine the life and the words of a person, if they speak and act in a way that is opposed to the Bible, and the people who listen to them speak and act in a way that's opposed to the Bible, then the source isn't God. That group is a cult whose origin is the spirit of error. Now, that concept is simple. So why is it that cults are so dangerous and sadly so effective in pulling people away from the truth? There's a saying that we use here in Florida. If it looks like a duck and swims like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck. But that's not how we're supposed to approach understanding the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The problem with that logic is that those involved in a cult don't look like a wolf. They look like a sheep. You tell the difference between a sheep and a wolf not by what they dress like or look like, You tell the difference between a sheep and a wolf by what they eat. Sheep eat grass. Wolves eat sheep. Cults find their origins within a church environment, pulling sheep away, pulling sheep away from the truth. And that's what Paul warned his young protege, Pastor Timothy, about in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4. He said, Timothy, I warn you, in the last days, man, perilous times are going to come. I hear so often Christians quote that verse about the world. It is not about the world. Keep reading that whole text. He's talking about false teachers. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 13, he says, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So how do we not get deceived? Well, Don't listen to them. Instead, you continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them, and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. When he talks about in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 3, when he says, or 2, he says, preach the word, because in verse 3, the time will come when they won't endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap for themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned into fables. He's not saying that's coming from some weirdo out in some obvious cult scenario. 
He says it's going to happen in an environment that looks just like this. So that's why we begin our journey on the topic of Christian cults, by pointing out God's clear command to us that we need to learn to recognize the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error when someone claims to speak for God. And we obey that command by looking at what the messenger says and how they live. Does what they say line up with the Bible? And does how they live line up with the Bible? If either one of those is off, stop listening to them. They're going to pull you away from the Lord. Now, next week, we're going to dig deeper into the essential truths about the Bible that cults mess with. So that's my plug for next Sunday night. Let's all stand. Say it's over already? Yes. I'm out of time. I hope you're excited. Hope it was a good start. Looking forward to what the Lord's going to have for us. But again, my goal here is not to just give you, you know, an education on Mormonism or, you know, the Watchtower Society or Black Hebraism or some other local cult. We'll talk about some of those things, but that's not the goal. The goal is to equip us and inoculate us so we can know and recognize things we go, that's off and here's why. So that's our goal. So and this is the start. You have to test what you're listening to. If that's something that maybe you've not done, you thought, well, I don't really go and look at my Bible. Well, then you can start tonight. Go back over 1 John 4. Check me out. Is what Pastor Will saying correct? Is, is it true? I promise you, even though it will take time and energy, you'll never regret it. You'll never come back to me and go, you know, Pastor Will, you told me to do this, and it was a waste of my time. I promise you. Go check me out. You'll benefit from it. Amen? Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we, and we thank you, Lord, that you, you speak to us individually. You don't just want to speak to us through some, some messenger. And we're glad for the messengers you put in our lives. That's what we studied this morning. Lord, the gifts that you give, you, you send people to, to bless us, to minister to us, to speak into our lives. But Lord, you also command us not just to trust whatever somebody says. We got to check it out. So Lord, help us to be Bereans. Lord, help us to be those who go back to the word who look at and know how to differentiate between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So, Lord, that when we see that it's your spirit that's speaking, we can receive it, and we can embrace it and live it out. We can be like those that John described who said, hey, you guys are of God because you listen to what we say. You listen to the word. That's who we want to be, Lord. We want to reject those who are not listening to the word, don't listen to them, but we do want to listen to your spirit and those you send to speak to us your word. So help us to be able to differentiate. Bless our time in the study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.